No matter how hard you try, you can't stop me now. Saints and Temptations, David Ruffin, Melvin Franklin, Otis Williams, Eddie Kendricks, and Paul Williams. The refrain, no matter how hard you try, you can't stop me now, comes from the Temptations song, Message from a Black Man. We here at Solutions of Balance, along with our guest today, Dr. Arnold Farr, believe that the liberation of our Black brothers and sisters is going to happen. We also believe that Black liberation causes white liberation. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM here in Louisville, Kentucky. You are listening to Solutions of Balance, a program sponsored by WFMP Radio. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host, Jamie McMillan, is currently on sabbatical. Technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Our guest today is the philosopher, Dr. Arnold Farr. Dr. Farr is currently a philosophy professor at the University of Kentucky. His research interests are German idealism, Marxism, critical theory, philosophy of race, postmodernism, psychoanalysis, and liberation philosophy. He has published numerous articles and book chapters on all of these subjects. He is currently co-author and co-editor of Marginal Groups in Mainstream American Culture. In 2009, he published Critical Theory and Democratic Vision, Herbert Marcuse, and Recent Liberation Philosophies. He is currently working on a book on race, a collection of essays of Marcuse, and a single-authored manuscript entitled Misrecognition, Mimetic Rivalry and One-Dimensionality Toward a Critical Theory of Human Conflict. Arnold Farr is also the founder of the International Herbert Marcuse Society, which meets every two years. Welcome to Solutions of Balance, Dr. Farr. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get started. We've got a lot of ground to cover here. So Dr. Farr, you have a PhD in philosophy. What has led you down this path? I hear dentistry pays better. Yeah, I didn't choose the best paying profession, that's for sure, but, but it does okay. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. Uh, yeah, I um, the weird thing is when I went to college, I was a major in theater. I wanted to be an actor because I was a bodybuilder at the time and I was following the footsteps of Arnold Schwarzenegger. But while in college, I took um, a class in philosophy just as a requirement and fell in love with philosophy. I literally felt my mind expanding in that course, and I, I enjoyed the feeling of my well, feeling my intellect growing and learning how to think about matters from a variety of, of angles. So I took on philosophy and went on to add religion and psychology to that and ended up with a triple major in philosophy, religion, and psychology. So, Dr. Ford, your scholarship, as it relates to critical theory, has to do with your advocacy for the liberation of African-Americans and others struggling with oppression. There is a study conducted by Northwestern University, Harvard, and the Institute of Social Research in Norway and published in the Intelligentsia, penned by Eric Levitz, that demonstrates, quote, employers are still discriminating against African-American job applicants like it's 1989, end quote. Some, quote, 24 studies together representing more than 54,000 applications and submitted for more than 25,000 job openings. White applicants received, on average, 36% more callbacks than equally qualified African-Americans, end quote. This was an extensive study published in the Intelligentsia in September 2018 that has revealed yet another level of violence, level against minorities. As you know, Redlining is a systematic process used by financial institutions and real estate agents proposed to prevent African-Americans from purchasing homes in white middle-class neighborhoods. Redlining still exists, as evidenced by the fact that most U.S. cities are still highly segregated. An article penned by Stephen Menendenen, U.S. neighborhoods are more segregated than a generation ago, perpetrating racial inequality. Published in the Think newsletter produced by NBC News August 16, 2021, states, quote, new research developed by our team at the University of California, Berkeley, shows that racial residential segregation is both widespread and more harmful than once thought. The U.S. Census Bureau tells us that 26.1 million Americans still do not have health care insurance. An article entitled, quote, Population 26.1 Million Lack Health Insurance in 2019, end quote, explains that the 26 million 
is about 8% of the U.S. population. Of that uninsured population, 16.7% are Hispanic and 9.6% are Black. Mm -hmm. So that's 2,496,000 African Americans that are without health care insurance. So the evidence is there. Institutionalized racism still exists within the American capitalistic system. So here's my question. Does critical theory in your advocacy support carrying the capitalistic system out by the roots and replacing it with a different economic system? Or do you support a, a piecemeal approach perhaps directing government and American capitalism towards a more socialistic system like the socialism that exists in Scandinavian countries. What do you think? Yeah, thank you for the question. Marxist conversations, there, there's sort of two terms people use. One is reform. So I think the piecemeal approach that you're talking about would be what people call reform. So you're reforming the capitalist system or reshaping it. And I think that's more of a band-aid approach that doesn't really get to the root of the matter. The other term is used is revolution. Right. And I, I guess I would, would um, view myself as more of a revolutionary. Now, revolution doesn't mean violence. People like to associate that term with violence. But when I think about the term revolution, I think about it in terms of total transformation. And the reason I emphasize total transformation is because you can't enter a new society with the same people you have in the old society. Right. What I mean by that. Um, for Makuza, for example, one of the things he talks about is developing a new sensibility, is that we need to develop a new sensibility. Because one of the things that capitalism does is it, not, it, it goes further than just economic manipulation. It manipulates the human psyche. And so our, our values, the way we think, our sensibilities, even our desires are all shaped by the mandates of capitalism. And so we're formed by the dictates of capitalism. And so what has to happen is there has to be a transformation, even at the instinctual level, that we develop a new sensibility and actually become new people. And that's pretty radical. And that does demand a kind of complete change or transformation, now, not just in the economic system, but in the people who are part of the economic system, right? Because there's a, uh, a relationship between that system and the people as the system attempts to shape and produce a certain kind of person. And so I think there needs to be a total transformation. Also, add, add something else to this. When people think about revolution too, they think about it as a one-time thing. There's this big moment where some, some big event happens and now we're in a new society. But Rosa Luxemburg, who I think is one of the greatest uh, thinkers in the Marxist tradition, who was assassinated, in 1919, talked about revolution as occurring in stages, right? There's not one single revolution, but multiple revolutions that occur in stages. And then that's kind of, that's not quite a piecemeal approach, but it's, it is kind of a evolutionary kind of approach, right? Where um, at one moment in time, we, I guess, recognize a certain set of problems that we have. We try to remedy those problems. There might be some kind of event or something that, that brings about some type of social change. But then we find ourselves in a new moment with new problems that we knew nothing about. And yet again, there has to be some kind of transformation. So she, she talked about the revolution is taking place in stages. And that's sort of where I am. It's something that will happen through stages. But at the same time, the goal is, is total transformation. But you're not talking about a violent revolution. You're not talking about people picking up arms and attacking government institutions. Yeah, I'm not talking about that at all. So That's how it. would this revolution occur that if, it, if it's not a violent revolution, it's not a takeover of the government, it's more like an evolution? Well, it's bringing pressure on the government for sure. Not by violence, but by, by constant sustained protests. Kind of like, I don't know if you're familiar with the new version of the Poor People's Campaign. And I, I, um, I'm on the state coordinating committee for the Kentucky Poor People Campaign. And there are... We're in like 45 states right now, and we've we've engaged in actions at the state capitol here in Kentucky and Frankfurt. And actually, I just got back from Washington, D.C. last week where we were engaged in some action in D.C. We go to D.C. every year, several times a year. And so I think building movements like that, that's not the only movement out there, but there's several movements where people are fighting for social justice and building movements, forming coalitions between these movements, holding our politicians accountable and being there um, in their space when they are making decisions that are harmful to the American people and not making decisions that benefit the American people. And I think it takes more and more activism, more and more getting involved in movements like that. I, there are new unions springing up all over the country. And so I think bringing political pressure on our politicians is one way that this happens.
And that doesn't require violence, but it does require action. Not unlike Gandhi. Yeah, right. Okay. So you're a critical theorist, uh, and you advocate for African-American liberation. Mm -hmm. Do you support the now, now uh, the thing that's, that has come up in many circles, reparations? What would reparations look like? A single-payer health care system, college tuition for all who qualify, grants for loans for those of color who want to start businesses, payments and low-interest housing loans to those who can prove they are descendants of slaves? Would reparations be part of this nonviolent revolution? That you're that you're talking about? Yes, absolutely, and I totally agree. I think um, it would include all those things you just mentioned. And the reason reparations is important is that you know America, America is a very wealthy country, and a lot of the wealth was built on the backs of slaves. America got a lot of its wealth through the cotton trade, and, and this is what you know slaves were cultivated and harvested cotton, and were not allowed the proper resources to actually participate in the American dream. And I think that has to be remedied. And I think reparations is one way of, of, of taking care of that problem. And again, that can be done too through nonviolent means. It can be done through legislation. So let's change directions here. The hot butt issues now filling the media and the airways. It's critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Cedric Powell, University of Louisville Law Professor, explains on my program, Solutions of Violence, November 22nd, 2021, that critical race theory is a litigative issue that is taught in university law schools, but is not taught in public middle schools and high schools. Critical race theory is about the history of litigation as it relates to racist institutions in the United States. So critical race theory is not related to critical theory, correct? That's correct. Yeah, they have two different origins, two different histories. Now, it is a case, as you see in my work, I'm a critical theorist, but I do address the issue of race, but critical theory itself has a, a different origin than critical race theory. And you're right to point to critical race theory as, as having this origin in law schools, legal studies, that area. Critical theory actually comes out of, uh, has its origins in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, when a group of scholars in the 1920s were doing research on the working class movements, and they were wondering why the Marxist revolution never took place in the way that Marx had predicted it. And they famously synthesized Marx and Freud because Freud helped them achieve an understanding of the, the human psyche and how it is that capitalism can, can shape the human psyche in such a way that those who will most benefit from a revolution are also those who are most likely to resist it. Eric Fromm, the famous psychologist, was a part of that original group. And they all uh, were exiled to the U.S., in the 1930s, when Hitler came to power and their lives were under threat, they all were exiled to the U.S. And after the war, most of them went back with the exception of Eric Fromm, who went to Mexico and lived, and Herbert Marcuse, who became a U.S. citizen. And so that's sort of the origin of critical theory. Of course, they include other philosophies, other types of theory. But again, the, the sole task was liberation and understanding the mechanisms that make liberation difficult. And not only make liberation difficult, but make those who need to be liberated resistant to struggles for liberation. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Earl. You just filled in a lot of gaps for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Critical theory advocates for freedom for all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the word freedom here is an interesting term. So Marxist theory does not grant perfect freedom for all. Marxist theory demands that people work together collectively. In order to work together collectively, individuals have to sacrifice some personal freedom. So how does critical theory justify that sacrifice? Well, two things. I think perfect freedom is impossible. and It can never exist. And I'll explain why. Yeah, I'll explain why right now. So perfect freedom is impossible because we all have to coexist. And in order to coexist and for anybody to have any freedom, we all have to limit our freedom, right? So freedom always is a limited freedom. And along with that, freedom is also always a, a form of responsibility. If I'm free, then I'm responsible. I'm responsible for myself. I'm responsible for my actions. I'm responsible for who I become. And to the extent that I coexist with others, I'm responsible for the kind of relationship I have with others. And I'm responsible for how I interact with others. So freedom, and, and Eric Fromm wrote about this too. I mean, his book, Escape from Freedom, basically talks about how, you know, we, we talk about freedom all the time, but we all 
also at the same time as we talk about freedom and express the desire for freedom, we attempt to escape from freedom, right? And the, the escape from freedom, the type of freedom we attempt to escape from is responsibility, right? Taking responsibility for my actions and, and my interactions in the world. The collective thing, although we're not in a Marxist society at the moment, people are still making sacrifices, right? Even co just coexisting requires uh, a certain level of sacrifice. And one of the, if I was to engage in kind of a Marxist critique, I would argue that the problem in our society is some people are required to sacrifice way more than they should or way more than others, such as those who are, who are in poverty, who work very hard, very long hours, but do not make a living wage. Right? They are making the ultimate sacrifice. They're doing what we encourage them to do, get a job and work, but then there's a refusal to pay them a living wage. So they're making the ultimate sacrifice in our society. And given that they're making the ultimate sacrifice, there is in that a kind of lack of freedom to the extent that they, they labor, but they have very little voice when it comes to uh, what they will receive from their labor. They do not get to determine what their labor is worth, what they should make. They do not get to determine what kind of working conditions they work under and so many other things. At the end of the day, you know, when payday comes, you find many of these people, that, that, that hundreds of thousands in Kentucky sitting at the table and they have to make some choices, right? And, and, and <laughs> they have to choose between buying insulin this month or groceries or paying the light bill. And so I think those people are making the ultimate sacrifice and transforming our society in such a way that all people who work make a living wage will actually increase freedom for those people who are now experiencing a lack of freedom. I hope I answered every part of the question. I said a lot there. I want to make sure I I keep track of every part of the question. So if I didn't answer anything, please let me know. No, that's that's fine. And I'm, I'm sitting here listening to your your uh, answer, and I'm thinking the fact that Eric Fromm is also the author of The Art of Loving. Yes, mm -hmm. that fact is not going to be lost in our audience. But let's let's bring this conversation back into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Currently, there are vocal groups attending public school board meetings. These folks are yelling at school board members because public school boards are requiring students to wear masks to school in order to prevent the spread of the COVID virus. Millions of Americans remain unvaccinated against COVID, stating that vaccination should be their personal choice. Their freedom issue comes up again here. These folks claim that when government demands that individuals take a vaccine, that could protect them from the COVID virus, that demand is an infringement on their personal freedom. What does critical theory have to say to these folks, considering the fact that critical theory emphasizes freedom? Yeah, good question. A couple of things. Uh, the word freedom is greatly misunderstood in this country. And again, like I said before, there's no such thing as absolute freedom for the individual, that freedom is always a limited freedom, and it carries along with it responsibility. And part of being free is being alive to be free, right? And I think out of respect for other people and, 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 and out of love, talk about the art of loving and caring for other people, we have a moral duty to receive a vaccination in, in the situation that we're in when there's a, a pandemic or a virus like COVID. And so I think, I mean, one of the things I would say to these parents is talk about terms we use all the time, like, like democracy and, and, and terms like that. And we talk, we, a lot of terms we use when we talk about our society and the positive things, the good things in our society. But what do those terms mean in the context where you're so stuck on yourself and your own personal freedom that you're not willing to take a simple vaccination to save the life of your neighbor. It's, it's weird that most of these people um, are churchgoers. And I keep thinking about the emphasis on loving your neighbor and the responsibility that we have to our neighbors. And somehow that doesn't seem to enter their thinking. But that's one of the approaches I would take in terms of talking about our responsibility to our, our neighbors. And also this is sort of a recent thing. And I think this is what has happened is COVID has been politicized by the right, by right-wing politicians. And that's been, that was intentional. We've had to take forms of vaccines from, for God knows how long. I had to take vaccinations when I was coming up. You know, we had to take vaccinations against, at some point in our history, against smallpox and, and several other kinds of illnesses that we were vaccinated against. Pardon, polio, yes, polio. So for all those years, mandatory vaccinations was not a problem at all until now. And 
I think it's a problem not because it's strictly a, a political tool that's being used by certain right-wing politicians. Okay. So you're currently working on a manuscript titled Misrecognition, a Mimic Rivalry and One-Dimensionality Toward a Critical Theory of Human Conflict. So I assume this manuscript has to do with a mimic desire of people learning to want the same thing, an attempt to explain the origins of social conflict and violence. So if your interest here is about exploring the origins of conflict and violence, we here at Solutions to Balance, we're all ears. We're avid listeners. Yeah, um, that's precisely what the book is about, understanding uh, the origins, sources of violence and conflict, and then how conflict or violence is maintained, right? How our sensibilities develop in such a way that we continue to perpetuate conflict and violence. And I think one of the, the first thing we have to do, I just, I, in fact, let me just step back for a minute. I wrote a, a piece last, uh, just a few months ago. There's a new book that, that's coming out soon by a friend of mine, George Yancey. And it's a book where a, a group of African-American philosophers, each of us contributed a chapter talking about the situation of Black men in America today. And the focus is on the George Floyd event. And the chapter I wrote, I don't remember the exact title right now, but, but it's, it has to do, in the title, it's something like the 400-year war against Black people, right? And it was last year when I started thinking about this in terms of war. And I mentioned that because in order to, to deal with violence, we have to understand the origins of it and how it's maintained and be honest about it. And one of my, my um, key resources in this book is uh, Rene Girard, who his, his entire career was an analysis of violence and conflict and mimetic rivalry. And he makes a startling claim that every civilization is built on a founding murder. And he goes through history to prove that, right? He looks at, he looks at religious texts, mythology, and actual history. It shows that every civilization, every society has a founding murder. And then what happens over a period of time is rituals are put in place to help us forget that founding murder. And in the midst of all of that, from time to time, there are conflicts, there are rivalries that lead to violence. And then after the violence, there's another ritual put in place to help us forget the violence. And I mention that because America has a founding murder at its origin, too. And think about what happened to Native Americans, um, the slaughter of Native Americans and the, the kidnapping of people from Africa and, and enslaving them. And of course, we talk about that. That happened a long time ago. But the past continues to assert itself in the present and the future. And that's what we have to be aware of. The ways in which the past has is not simply the past. It has a way of working its way into the present and the future. And we have to be honest about our origins, how we started, and be truthful about who we are and come to terms with that. And then we can come up with a solution. So, so honesty about who we are. So, so Americans are really addicted to comfort. We like to be comfortable. We like comfortable stories. Uh, we're addicted to comfortable narratives about who we are. And we do everything in our power to, to uh, avoid discomfort. But we're going to have to be willing to be uncomfortable, very uncomfortable for a while, as we take a look at our history and who we are and why we're continuing to see, to see cycles of violence and cycles of, of race-based violence also. Did I help a little bit or did I say too much or not enough? No, so I'm, I'm listening to this answer and thinking that history and the way it is taught in our public high schools and colleges and universities as well is critically important. It's critically important that, that we teach that history that leads to a difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. If we're going to be honest about it. Right. So, yeah. So let me ask this question. Even though critical race theory is not being taught in public schools, attack on critical race theory is being used to impede and whitewash the teaching of African-American and Native American history in our public schools and universities. Two bills, BR-60 and BR-69, pre-filed by Republicans Joe Fisher and Matt Luckett, in the Kentucky State Legislature are designed to impede the teaching of African-American and Native American history in our public schools and universities. Dishonest, you're talking about teaching, needing to be honest with our history. That's the dishonest way of teaching history if we're going to impede the teaching of African-American and Native American history. Right. So PR 60 and PR 69 are also designed to impede the teaching of the history of the LBGDQ and women's rights movement. Mm -hmm. If these two bills become law, 
they will have heavy penalties. BR60 will allow the Kentucky Attorney General, now currently Daniel Cameron, to revoke the certification of teachers that are found in violation of the law. If public schools are not allowed to teach the history of minority groups, what kinds of problems will that cause for our students of color? Why would not teaching the history of African-American community cause problems for white students as well? You can answer these questions as an African-American student who grew up at public schools, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let me start. So in terms of Black students, this is a, a deep form of psychological oppression. Basically, it erases Black history, and the message sent to Black people, to Black students, is you've not done anything. And if you've not done anything, you have no history, you have no worth, no importance. And that's that's horrific. It is horrific to think that Black students will be, I wouldn't even say educated, but go through an educational system and have no knowledge of the heroic efforts of so many great Black people from Martin Luther King to Harriet Tubman to to Frederick Douglass and, and so many others who are important, not just as Black figures, but important Americans. And, you know, I, I, been my experience, everything I know about Black history, I had to teach myself. So my, my own education was a form of miseducation. I think when I was in school, I read only one Black author in the classroom, and I think that was a poem by Phyllis Wheatley, right? So I was a victim of that kind of whitewashed education where we're not going to say anything about Black people. And I think that's, that's, that's horrible. It have a horrible impact on our students of color. And it'll have a horrible impact on white students too, because two things here regarding white students. When we talk about racism in this country, we talk about slavery and the struggle against slavery and the slow struggle against Jim and Jane Crow laws in the South and things like that. They're also heroic white people who stood with black people and fought for the rights of black people. They're white people who lost their lives in this struggle, right? These are heroic white people who are on the right side of history. And so we're not going to tell our white students about them, right? So one of the claims that's made by these people who oppose, who think that critical race theory is being taught in our schools and oppose it, is that it makes white children feel bad about themselves. Well, no, because there are white heroes in that story. (laughs) So they can identify with those white heroes in the story. Uh, And the second thing is, again, it's important for us to know who we are. If we don't understand our history, racism will continue, the violence will continue, white students will be ignorant of the present situation, the world we live in now. I mean, think about all that went on last year, last summer, 2020, and all the issues around race, right? Think about white students trying to grapple with that without having any knowledge whatsoever of Black history and the Black situation. They wouldn't, under, wouldn't be able to understand it. And as a result, they're, they're in a position to repeat actions based in ignorance, to actions racist actions, and they have no weapons, no tools to resist becoming racist themselves and perpetuating racism and racialized violence. I think giving them this accurate history gives them the tools to think through contemporary race problems. And they don't know that history. They have no tools for thinking through, and they'll perpetuate the problem. Shelley Thomas, Dr. Shelley Thomas, who appeared on Solutions to Violence about a month ago, teaches University of Louisville the Department of Education. She teaches people how to be teachers. She made the point that without that African-American history, without that uh, Native American history, the history mm-hmm. of the women's movement, LBGDQ movement, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be really difficult for students, white students and Black students, to acquire the kind of critical thinking skills That's right. that you really need in order to succeed in, in a 21st century economy. And also, and those same skills, critical thinking skills, right. are critically important or in a, in a democracy here. Having a democracy requires that we have knowledge of each other. We understand each other. And we have to understand the good and the bad. Another thing I want to say about not just critical race theory, uh, but any kind of teaching of African-American history, the purpose is not to make anybody feel bad, but to give people those critical tools that you're talking about. I, I wrote a little piece on critical race theory I guess back in the summer. And one of the points I tried to drive home is you and I both know as individuals, we're not perfect. We've got flaws. And some of those flaws interferes with some of the flaws I have over the years have interfered with my relationship with people. Every rational human being has to understand that he or she is not perfect and he or she has flaws. And we have to understand also 
that our moral duty is to really not get rid of our flaws, but to at least try to make ourselves better people. The only way we can become better individuals is to engage in critical self-reflection. That is to, I have to look at myself and understand what my flaws and my weaknesses are before I can do something about them. That applies to a society at, whole, at large also, right? Just like the individual, no society is perfect. Society has its flaws, its dark side, and every society needs some kind of improvement. And we only improve when we engage in those moments of critical self-reflection so that we know what our problems are and we can adequately deal with those problems. These two bills that you mentioned are an attempt to put under erasure the possibility of critical self-reflection. And if we put under erasure critical self-reflection, <laughs> there is no way we're going to improve as a, as a society and improve our relationships with each other. Okay. But these two bills have been pre-filed. Right. And they are going to come out. They're going to be filed again in, in early January 2022 by, by the Republicans. And they will affect not only the way high school teachers teach history, but they will affect the way college professors, university professors teach history. So there is a petition now circulating among college professors. It's called the Zen petition. The Zen petition states that the people who signed that petition will teach Native American and African American history, regardless of what the Kentucky state laws say. Would you sign that petition? Would you sign the, the Zen petition if it comes around? I would be very happy to sign it. And I look forward to it coming around to me so that I can sign it sign it in big, bold letters. <laughs> um, I would certainly sign it. And let me say a word about that possibility, too, of, of sort of impacting what we teach. These legislators are not educators. I'm an educator. I was trained to be an educator. And I take that job very seriously. And as an educator, I have a duty to educate. And I want, them, I want it to be loud and clear that I'm not going to shuck responsibility. My duty is to educate. So... I'm not going to let politicians in Frankfurt who have no training in my field tell me what to teach. That would not happen, right? Bills pass, come with me, I'll, I'll, I'll suffer the consequences, but I will be teaching Native American, LGBTQ, and African American history in my courses. I just did this past semester, actually, and um, also in the process of, of developing a new course that will be on the books for good at UK, I hope. So, yeah, um, I'm ready to sign that petition. A new course? Does it have a title? Not yet, but um, so I taught a course. I taught this course twice. I taught it um, at a graduate level. Uh, I taught a course on, it was philosophy of race, class, and gender, and sexuality. Uh, that was a few years ago. This year, I taught a course just on philosophy of race. But those are courses that are not on the books. They're kind of like, so Philosophy 500, for example, is a placeholder. It doesn't have a particular topic like other numbers do. And so I taught philosophy 500. When you teach that, you can sort of teach whatever topic you want. So I chose to teach 500 one year. And that's when I taught philosophy of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Um, but those courses are on the books. So what I'm trying to do now is develop a course that will be on the books permanently that will be in our two-year rotation. So we have a two-year rotation of courses that are permanently on the books. And they can be expected to come around every couple of years. And we don't have a course like that on race on the books yet. Um, but we're in the process of trying to make that happen. So there'll be a, a course that deals with those issues in our normal rotation of courses. So, Professor, if you erase or whitewash 246 years of history, the history of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow oppression, the 400 years of institutionalized racism, teach the history of U.S. foreign policy from a Manichaean perspective, as if the United States is always right and its enemy is always wrong, the United States does begin to look pretty good, yeah. like the exception that many middle and high school texts portray. But isn't refusing to focus on our mistakes just putting our best foot forward? You address this issue. We can't change the past. Why dwell on it? What's the benefit of going back and talking about the things that we did wrong? Yeah, addressing the past helps us understand the present so that we can shape the future. So as I said, the past doesn't simply go away. It still has an impact on the present. And our knowledge of the past, again, it's a knowledge of who we are and who we've been. It is the critical self-reflection that we've been talking about, understanding where we've come from, so we can understand why we are where we are now and how we might move forward. Again, it's the same type process when an individual engages in critical 
self-reflection. I look at my past behaviors and some of those past behaviors have been problematic. I don't want to carry those past behaviors into my future. So I've got to remember that past, those past behaviors. I've got to reflect on them and figure out how do I change those negative parts of myself that I don't want to carry into my future. And the society has to, has to do the same thing. The country, I think, has to do the same thing. Okay, so teaching that past is so critically important. Why do the Republicans want to pass bills that will impede the teaching of African-American and Native American history? What's the political benefit here? Well, the political benefit, of course, is to control the narrative and, and, and to maintain the narrative of white supremacy. I think they, they maintain the narrative of white supremacy and put all other struggles under erasure. Yeah, I think, I don't know if I have much more to say than, than, than that, that they benefit from in terms of maintaining a certain kind of, of narrative. And, and uh, teaching our real accurate history is a challenge to the kind of narrative they want to maintain. They lose control of that narrative if we teach accurate history. So in order to maintain control of that narrative and thereby control of the political system, they need to put that accurate history that we desire to teach under erasure. Okay. So, but it's not just Kentucky here. These two bills that have been filed in Kentucky legislature, right. BR-60 and BR-69, pre-filed, which are designed to impede the teaching of Native American and African American history, are similar to Republican bills that have been filed in state legislatures throughout the South. Mm-hmm. The fact that similar bills have been, have been filed in states all over the country indicates the Republicans have a national political strategy. What's that plan? I think going back to what we said, uh, we were talking about the past a while ago. I think this is a, a, one of the moments where, where it's revealed to us that racism hasn't gone away. Another important African-American figure that I got to meet several years ago is a theologian named William Jones, who lived in Florida. He wrote a famous book called This God of White Racist, and he, he passed away a few years ago. But early in my career, I had the opportunity to meet him. And we had a conversation and he said that, you know, racism is like an organism. Right. You have to think of it as an organism and think about how organisms strive to survive. And when the environment around around an organism changes so that that environment becomes a threat to the organism, the organism often undergoes changes itself. That is, it evolves to adapt to a new environment so that it can continue to live. Racism does the same way. That's why it's important to know this history, because there's been an ongoing strategy that has never. Yeah, has, has always been with us. And so it's not the case that you have a movement like the civil rights movement in the 60s and a few laws change and all of a sudden racism has gone. It's not the case that you elect a black president like Barack Obama and racism has gone. It's always there trying to adapt to the new situation. And I think what we're seeing now is new forms of racism adapting to the fact that we did have a black president. And uh, a lot of racists felt themselves losing control, losing control of the narrative, losing control of losing some power. And they felt that a change was in the air, a change was coming. And uh, we're seeing a, a huge wall of backlash now against that potential change that we saw some years ago, right? And I think the right has been very good at long-term strategies. Those of us on the left have been terrible at long-term strategies. Well, they've had a long-term strategy from the beginning, and they, they understand how to adapt to whatever progress we make, right? A little bit of progress is made, they'll adapt to it, right? And, and figure out how to overcome it. And I think that's what we're seeing happen all over the country. So it's the same ongoing system of white supremacy that was put in place 400 years ago, but it has to modify itself to survive. Dr. Ricky Jones, yeah. chairman of the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville, made that point on my, my program, Solutions Violence, a couple of weeks ago. He said, really, the previous president is a reaction to mm-hmm. the election of Barack Obama. That's right. Yeah, you know, it's like it was after Obama's election, this is when Trump emerged as a political figure with the birther movement. And I, th- I think about all the things that, and see, this is why history is important. You, you can't forget, put the pieces together, right? You have the birtherism and Trump leading that move, the rise of the Tea Party. And after Obama was elected in 2008, all of a sudden, there's an emergency meeting by Republicans in Florida. Now, Democrats have been elected before, but there's never been an emergency meeting because of a Democrat was elected. But with Obama, there was this emergency meeting where all these guys flew to Florida to meet. Um, well, what was that about, really, right? Uh, they were scared because they felt themselves losing power and losing control over the narrative of white supremacy. 
And so they had to figure out how to combat that. And Donald Trump comes in at the right moment with the uh, the right strategy and language. And here we are. Okay. So while for quote, some 18 states have already enacted 30 laws this year that will make it harder for Americans to vote, end quote. States, a recent Brianna Center for Justice article, voter suppression greatly impacts the African-American community. January 6th, the nation watched as an attempted right-wing insurrection was leveled against the United States Capitol building. We listened while the previous president delivered accusations concerning voter fraud, voter fraud that never existed. His lies now well-documented. Chip Brownlee's article, quote, 2020 by numbers, end quote, published in the Trace January 3rd, 2021, states, quote, 378 preliminary count of the number of times that members of militia or far-right groups committed acts of violence against, threatened, or otherwise interfered with racial justice protesters and intimidated voters in 2020, end quote. Historians like Barry Craig and Dr. Ricky Jones and political scientists like Suzanne Mettler from Cornell and Robert Liberman from John Hopkins, as evidenced by their Los Angeles Times article, quote, four threats, the recurring crisis of American democracy, end quote, worry that the American democracy is in danger of collapsing. Barry Craig stated on Solutions of Violence that the November 8, 2022 congressional elections may be the most important election since Lincoln. What do you think? Is the U.S. democracy in danger of collapsing here, or is it just looked that way because of our lack of historical knowledge? I think it is in danger of collapsing, and I also think it has always been in danger of collapsing. Right. And I say that because I I don't think we ever really had a democracy. It takes more than voting to make a democracy. It takes more uh, active participation than that. And um, some of us have always had to struggle uh, to be able to vote. And then that struggle is not over. And going back to the history of the country and the origins of founding of the country and the fact that when the founding fathers talked about freedom and equality, they were only talking about people like themselves. They were excluding Native Americans. They were excluding people of African descent. They were excluding women. They were excluding white males who did not own property. So all of that wonderful talk about freedom and equality only applied to a very small percentage of the American population. And all of American history has been a, the struggle of those of us who were excluded from those promises to be included. And so what we had or have at best is a democratic experiment that could work or utterly fail. And I think because we've not been honest about this democratic experiment and not active in trying to complete it, that it's always been in danger of collapse. And that's why we're in the place that we're in right now is because of our our lack of action in the past and our lack of self-understanding and our our, uh, refusal to be honest with ourselves about who we are. now we're at this point where collapse looks a lot more imminent than it did before. I'm hoping that it doesn't fall apart. That's why I continue to do the work that I do, hoping that somehow enough of us will be voices crying out in the wilderness that we might be able to save this democratic experiment. But I'm also, uh, I'm a realist that it could go either way. My hope is that we can save it. Okay. So as you were discussing this, where I'm looking at, again, going back to history, and the way that history is taught in our middle and high schools, public high schools, is taught from a, a, an American exceptionalism perspective, mm-hmm. as if the, uh, the United States is an exceptional representative democracy. But that exceptionalism really was based initially on, on religious mythology brought to us by the Puritans who came to, as our history Teachers explained to us in high school, they were right about this. The Puritans came here for the uh, purpose of of escaping uh, religious persecution. Mm -hmm. That was part of the reason they came here. But there was another reason. They looked at Luke 12.32 in the New Testament states, followers of Jesus are leaders of men. And so the Puritans said, well, hey, we're followers of Jesus. That makes us leaders of men. And because we're followers of Jesus, God has created for us on this planet a place. Mm -hmm. 
just for us. That's that's the basis of of American exceptionalism. They said America is that place. It's the exceptional place that God has created for us. Well, that part is not in the Bible. There's nothing about America in the Bible. There's nothing about God creating a special place, an exceptional place on the planet of Earth. But that's the way the Puritans explained it. And their Protestant cousins bought that idea. So that idea that America is exceptional because of the Puritan religious belief has filtered down through the years and is uh, much the basis of history books that are that are, that our students are, are reading in That's middle right. and high school. So I'm wondering how much of an influence that the idea that America is this exceptional country, which is based on mythology, fact that that's not really true, influences our thinking and prevents us from looking at our history critically, becoming a, a nation that, that is self-aware. Yes, that's right. You remind me of um, a course I took when I was in college on church history, or history of Christianity, something like that. And one day the professor showed us a documentary about the founding of the country. And uh, the narrator said that the, the founders, the early founders had three main ideas that were religious and it justified them taking over the land. The first one was that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The second one is that he can give that earth or a portion of the earth to his chosen people anytime he feels ready. And the third one is we're his chosen people, right? <laughs> so yeah, I think that the idea of American exceptionalism, what it has done is caused us to put ourselves on a pedestal so we refuse to engage in moments of critical self-reflection because you got to always say positive things about America, right? Um, so we're refusing to engage in, in critical self-reflection. Uh, it creates a, a, a us against them mentality that U.S. against the rest of the world. We're better than everybody else. And we don't have anything to learn from anybody else or any other country. Right. And that's all problematic. And, uh, and, and I, I tell you, I have a here's an example. Several years ago, I was at an event here in Lexington and I had created uh, a page on Facebook that was a political page. Uh, for political conversations. And one of my friends did the background for the page, the, the little picture, and it had a picture of several extreme right politicians and some kind of Nazi symbol, sort of sort of suggesting that we're not careful, we're headed in that direction. And so a woman approached me at this event and was upset by that and very critical of it. And she talked about her family, some of her family members surviving the Holocaust and all of that. And her criticism of, of myself on that page was that that would never happen here. You're jumping the gun. This is the wrong message. We are better than that. Right. This must have been in 2000. I don't remember several, several years ago. And, you know, again, you said the, the idea that, that we are better than that, that can't happen here. The idea of American exceptionalism leads so many people to believe that. And we don't have to critically self-reflect because we are too good for, for things that happen in other countries to happen here. And now I hope that this woman and, and others who had that type of idea or mentality are seeing things a bit differently and understand that we have to wake up because any atrocity that's happened anywhere else can certainly happen here. And we mentioned a critical theory a few several times, which was invented by the Frankfurt School, those, those, those um, scholars that came over. Uh, in the 30s to escape Hitler were called the Frankfurt School because they began in Frankfurt. Um, when they came to the U.S., they said, I think in the 1940s, they said that the U.S. is right for fascism, that it could happen here. And they knew that in the 1940s. They saw something in the 1940s uh, that said it could happen here too. Um, uh, Herbert Marcuse and several other members did work for the OSS, which is the Office of Strategic Services that became the CIA. And they were hired to do research for them because they, the, the United States government wanted to understand what is it about the German mentality that allowed fascism to take place. And their reports were published about five or six years ago, a very massive book of all the reports that they wrote for the U.S. government. And you can sort of see in those reports, when they do an analysis of the German psyche, the kind of psyche that made fascism possible, that it parallels to a lot of things that were happening in the United States then is happening in the United States now. Some of the same. Uh, again, another famous book by them uh, is a book they did on the authoritarian personality, right? They did studies on authoritarianism. Eric Fromm was involved in some of those studies on authoritarianism. And so when you read that stuff, because I'm doing another, I'm doing also a second book on Makuza right now. So I spent the last couple of years deep in some of the writings from the 20s, 30s, and 40s in Germany. 
And uh, when you read some of that stuff, it, it, it's scary how much it sounds like they sat here in America today and wrote that material, you know. Um, I'll stop there because I'm getting long-winded. But, yeah, but your answer brings to mind Sinclair Lewis's book, It Can't Happen Here. Mm-hmm. It was a, a startling reminder that, well, yeah, it can happen here. Mm-hmm. So if our listeners want to know more about critical theory, liberation philosophy, philosophy of race, African-American history, what books or articles would you recommend? Um, <laughs> there are so, so, so many, hundreds and hundreds. But I'll mention just a few off the top of my head that I think are, are of interest. So one book I just finished teaching in the philosophy of race class, I thought was a wonderful book in terms of looking at the history of the intersections of race, class, and gender. Uh, it's by Angela Davis, uh, who's actually a student of Mokuza's, by the way. Her book is called Gender class and race. I think it's a very good book for, for looking at the history of those issues, especially since the, like the late 1800s forward. Uh, the Angela Davis Reader is another one that's higher on my list. A book by the sociologist Patricia Hill Collins called Black Feminist Thought. It's one of my favorites. Charles Mills, his book, The Racial Contract. Um, and then he did a book with Carol Pateman called The Contract of Domination, where they deal with issues of, of gender, sexuality, and race. Race Matters by Cornel West is another good place to start. There's a collection of essays by Frankfurt School members called Critical Theory and Society, a reader, a good place to start. Two histories of, of critical theory. One is um, introduction, to, uh, introduction to Critical Theory by David Hale. And another one is by Martin Jay called The Dialectical Imagination, Nice Histories of, of Critical Theory. And finally, I have to put in a plug for myself, my book, Critical Theory and Democratic Vision, I would recommend for a number of reasons. Okay, all right. So thank you, Dr. Farr. Folks, we're out of time. Our conversation today has been with philosopher and professor Dr. Arnold Farr. We wanna thank Dr. Farr for joining us as we explore solutions to violence. We also wanna thank our radio audience for joining us at WFMP Radio. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Arnold Farr will be rebroadcast December 28th and 29th. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardvideo.org and choosing Listen Live Now. Solutions of Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. This program featuring Dr. Arnold Parr will be placed in our archives December 29, 2021. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardvideo.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions of Violence program that features Arnold Parr. If you'd like to share your thoughts, about our discussion with Arnold Farr, you can reach us with the following email address, solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. I'm Joe Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Wishing you and yours safe and peace during the December holidays.